So I don't know who, uh, who all was at the fairgrounds worship last Sunday, but I listened to it this week. Nate did a great job, uh, whoever heard him. And it is, Tony, it's great to see you uh, back here. I know we have such great memories of the Fellowship Hall service uh, for so many years over on the east side. So it is great to be with you <clears throat> this morning. Um, I did actually hear from John this morning. Um, he is alive. Uh, and <laughs> I said, so John, I said, how are you doing? Can you tell me anything about where you are? And I got a fist bump emoji and fireworks emoji. So I don't know if that was a message to one of you, but I am passing that along. Uh, apparently there's some fireworks and fist bumping going on in John's day right now. So we're, we're glad that he's getting some rest, some time to study, some time away. And <clears throat> I do want to talk this morning. Uh, it's such an amazing day outside. I thought maybe we should all go over to the park and just go there. Uh, but we won't because the guys wouldn't like to drag the speakers and the drums and everything. So, but it is a beautiful day in the neighborhood. In fact, this is week six of our series, Love Thy Neighbor. And uh, today we're talking about uh, being intentional. And I want to talk a little bit today, too, about intentionality with our homes in our neighborhoods. Uh, it's been a great series. One of the, uh, s- some of the experts in small talk, some of the psychology experts say that if you want to generate small talk, one of the most common questions is, where is home for you? Anybody ever been asked that question in small talk? Yeah, so it's, it's really common, and, and, and it is a good question. It can, it can generate a whole lot of discussion that lead to some really interesting things, but for some people, that can be a hard discussion. It can be a, even a painful discussion, because home may not have the best meaning to you. There may be some brokenness. There may be some need for redemption and recovery from home, and we're going to talk about that today as well. So as we get into we want to talk a little bit about flipping that question, what was the home that built you? What is the home that is building you? And that's something we want to get into this morning. I'm, I'm actually glad to, to say in one of my favorite places in all of the Bible, and I want to start there today, um, God actually talks about our homes and the intentionality of our homes very plainly, very clearly. Acts chapter 17 verse 26 says this, God began by making one person, and from him came all the different people who lived everywhere in the world. God decided exactly when and where they must live. God wanted them to look for him and perhaps search all around for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. And I, and I love that thought because Nothing is, a, is an accident. So when, when you think about your home today, when you think about where you are, how you got there, the people that got you there, your parents, your grandparents, God is intentional and God ordained and con- He doesn't condone evil. So if you say, well, you don't understand my home, He doesn't condone that. But God chose your parents. God chose the direction, the place that you should, the, the Bible says the exact time in the exact place that we might reach for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. And I want to I get into that a little bit this morning and talk a little bit about a story out of the book of Acts where that exact thing happened. So when, when, we, think about, when we think about home, we, we generally want that to be a safe place. I know for us, 
in our household, when uh, our kids were smaller, uh, they did sleepovers. And it wasn't uncommon that between nine and midnight, we'd get the call that would say, somebody's homesick, uh, you should probably come get them. And so we did. And, and anybody else relate to that? Absolutely. Uh, so, so we wanted them to be safe, and, and, and that, that was good. But you might be saying, again, you don't understand. My home wasn't safe. My home wasn't happy. And I understand. I understand that. For me, growing up, the home that built me, it, there's some pain involved. It's the place where when I was the age of nine on a hot summer morning, we didn't have air conditioning, I woke up to a shrill of screams in my house. My mother had just found out that my father had been killed in an accident. He ran a plumbing business and the ground caved in on him and killed him. She was 35, he was 36, I was nine. My, my baby sister was six months, my brother was 11, my sister was 12. And that is still very fresh in my head. That, that home, part of home is fresh. And, and for a long time, and even today, there's pain there. So I understand home isn't always a happy place, but, but home can be intentional for the home that built you. So, so what I want to do is, is talk a little bit about the home that built me. And, and I, I've got a picture I want to share with you, which was, uh, was taken in in the 70s, so this is a year before my dad was killed. My dad is on the left. So, but I want to talk about the home and the people that built. Is this important? Because you're going, to re- you're going to recognize, not the people, but you're going to recognize people like this in your life. The guy going from left to right, there's my dad who managed the softball team, and this was their summer championship. They won the softball uh, series. Uh, the guy named Deuce, who's next to, to the left on, by the trophy, Deuce was an incredible athlete, incredible athlete. He also loved to fish. So Deuce took me fishing all the way up through when I was little and even into high school. He, his son was a professional athlete. It was this small, tiny town. Uh, but his, his son played at Purdue and then went on to play with the Chiefs and the Bills. So he would take me to football games with him, and we had a great time. He was always there, and, and he's still there today. A little bit further to the right, there's a guy named Leroy right above the trophy with peace sign. Leroy was in his 20s when he started working for my dad in high school. Actually, he was before his 20s. After my dad died, he walked with my mom the whole way in his 20s. And he eventually took over her business. And so Leroy was there. He's still there today. He's still running that business and took it over. And that was a great relief for my mom. Next to him, the guy holding the trophy, Jimmy, who was knew nothing about athletics. I think he just held trophies was his role. Jimmy was there all the time, is still there. When I was in junior high, we didn't have, really tiny town, 207 people. A a little town outside of Santa Claus called Mariah Hill. Just 207 people, 77 houses in that town. And we didn't have enough coaching for the team. So Jimmy says, well, I'll coach. You guys want to play? I'll coach. And he knew nothing about the game. So I pitched. And a, a, a pitching visit to the mound from Jimmy would be like this. I don't think you're throwing strikes. <laughs> and I got nothing for you. Because I don't know what you do or how you do it. But you should probably th- start throwing, stri- throwing strikes. That was a mound visit from Jimmy. But he was there. He was there. And then a little bit further to the, 
to the right then is Keith. That's my uncle. Keith married my mom's sister. He and my mom's sister, my aunt, to this day are with my mom almost every day. They take her to the Y in the mornings. They play cards with her at night. They do everything. They, they, they live really close together. So he was there, still is there. Uh, down at the bottom right, John, one of the biggest hearts of a man I've ever met. Um, he was at every one of my high school basketball and football games. And after the game, inevitably, I'd come home and John and his wife would be at my house and we'd sit and talk a little bit about the game. And then my brother is down the front left. He's a mentor for me. And to this day, we have a great relationship. He lives in Evansville. And then there's me looking cool with peace sign. But it wasn't great. It had a lot of pain in it. My, my grandmother, my dad's mom, lived next door to us. And she was there every day building our home when there was a lot of pain in the home. And I always knew that I had a great day when I smelled like grandma. Is it meant that she hugged on me that day. And I remember that smell and how great that felt because there was so much pain underneath and I did, that I didn't understand. I met my wife in high school. She's sitting here. I didn't realize I was going to get another mentor in my life, another dad in my life, who's my father-in-law, who's also here. Without him, without him laying out the gospel, I wouldn't probably know Christ. All of these pieces are orchestrated, and, it, and, and if we unpacked your life and we unpacked your, what builds your home, you would have the same story, right? You'd have these, these same people. And I love this thought out of Psalm 127.1. If the Lord is not helping the builders, then the building of a house is to no purpose. So who's building your home? Is your home a foundation and then bricks and mortar? Or is, is home something different? And what's influencing? So that's what we want to talk about this morning. We want to talk about the influence. So if you have a Bible or an electronic device, uh, we're going to be studying out of Acts 16, uh, verses 14 and 15. I'm going, to read out of, um, I'm going to read out of the voice translation, which I love. If you haven't ever read the voice translation, highly recommend it. Great readable version. Also this week, if you get a chance, listen to SherwoodOaks.org. Carrie Curry's has the same message this morning on the east side, and Sean Green has the same message on Bedford. We collaborated this week and had a great time talking. Uh, they have a, a, great, a great take on this. So we're going to start reading in verse 14. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the city walls to the nearby river, assuming that some Jewish people might be gathering for prayer. We found a group of women there. And so we sat down and we spoke to them. And one of them, Lydia, was a businesswoman originally from Thyatira. She made a living buying and selling fine purple fabric. And she was a true worshiper of God and listened to Paul with special interest. The Lord opened her heart to take in the message with enthusiasm. She and her whole household were ceremonially washed through baptism and said, if you believe I'm truly faithful to the Lord. Please, you must come and stay at my house. So we're going we're gonna to break this down. We don't know a lot about Lydia, but, but there's some things in here that we can really learn from this morning about building our homes. It, it's not intentional that Paul landed here. Okay, so it, the, the, the journey, the pathway that Paul took was 
was somewhat unique. And I want to I share that with you this morning because I think it's, it's really important. But the question I'm going to ask as you're listening to me is, how many times have you landed in an unintended space, place, journey, path that maybe frustrated you because you didn't intend on being there or you became late for something? But, but did God work that out? So, so here's Paul's journey. I'm going to actually um, I'm going to look through this slide. And you won't be able to see this, which is fine because it's not the point. The, the journey that Paul took, this is his second missionary journey, took three years. Paul's total journeys were 31 years. So imagine Paul didn't have a home, really seeking out, looking for home, establishing home, trying to get people home for 31 years. That, that's the journey. This, the second journey, starts down in the lower right in Jerusalem. So right in Acts 15, right after the council in Jerusalem, this was before, this was right after Peter got the vision to take the gospel to the Gentiles, which is a big deal. Because at that point in time, they were thinking the gospel needed to go to the Jews, which it did. Peter got the vision to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So Paul goes on a second journey to go back to all these churches and these places and towns to evangelize the Gentiles, which, unless you're Jewish, would have been us, okay? So, so Paul starts there, and it, it goes in his journey, a, a three-year thing. It starts out fairly, fairly good. Like he, he lands in these spots. What I want to point your attention to is up, up somewhere, this is Asia Minor on the right, this is Macedonia, so that's Turkey, and that's Greece. Up around the middle, you see the green line wander around a little bit, okay? So that's where our story is today. The wandering was this, Paul wanted to go, the Bible says he wanted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of God wouldn't enable him. And then he wanted to go to Mysia, and he wasn't able, he wasn't enabled. So he lands over on the coast in Troas, which is where he falls asleep. And when he falls asleep, he hears a guy who's in, who's in Greece or in Macedonia saying, come to Macedonia, we need you. And so Paul obeys. He gets on a ship to go to Samuthrak, which is an island. Instead, he lands at Neapolis. And there was nowhere else to go but north to the city of Philippi. Okay, now he's in Europe, which is significant. And that's where our scene lands. So imagine if you were with Paul in, in the 18th month, and he's going, guys, I, got it. I know we didn't land there, we didn't land there, we didn't land there, but we're going to go here. We're going to get on a ship, and I don't know about you, but I'm, I, you know, by the fifth day, I'm going like, where are we going, dude? Like, we're lost but they trusted, and God kept confirming where they were going. Great lesson for us. So Paul lands in, uh, in, in Philippi, and he comes upon this riverbank, which is, which is significant, because when he lands on the riverbank, the, the verse says, we wanted to go and find a place of prayer. So what that meant was that they, wanted, they were Jews, so they wanted to go find a synagogue. That, that was the, the the comfortable place to worship. And they, they land on this, this group of women. So when they, when they come to the group of women, if, if they were looking for a synagogue for a place of prayer, here's what that would have meant. That in, in Philippi at the time, if there was a synagogue, Jewish law said that there had to be 10 men in order to establish a synagogue to build a building. 
So it's likely that there were probably not even 10 men who were Jews in the city. But there was a group of women. And that's significant. We'll get to that in a minute. So because there was no synagogue, they were at a riverside. Why a riverside? Well, it's a riverside because there's a, an, an action in the Jewish faith that is considered a mini-baptism, which, um, which is important to the, to the Jewish law because they would have had to have been cleansed from their, from their sin. They would have gone through a cleansing and there had to have been ri- water flowing through it. So that's why they're at the river. Paul sits down and explains the gospel. And it says that Lydia got opened her heart and she listened with special interest. I don't know about you, and we're going to talk a little bit about prayer in just a minute, but listening with an open, intentional heart in prayer is critical. And I want to, I want to talk about what that meant for the Jewish faith and what it, what it means for you. So the, the slide that you saw up there, that is a place today, supposedly, that, that Lydia was. Um, in every synagogue, there was a rhythm. There was an opening prayer called the Shema. There was a reading from the Torah, the five, first five books of the Old Testament. And then there was a reading from the Haftar, which, which was one of the prophets. And then there was a, a, a Dashra, which was a, a rabbi's commentary. Very similar to how we, we worship today. But the one thing that I believe that was happening that doesn't probably happen in our lives, I want to, want to share with you in this video so you, you have an understanding. Open confession. Probably a year or so ago, I was struggling. I was struggling to, to feel connected in my prayer life. I felt like I was going through the motions. I, didn't, I felt like I was talking at God, but I wasn't hearing. And I, I didn't even process like what that meant or what, I did, what to do differently. I don't know that I had the, the courage or, or the the drive to, to do anything different. And I, I was struggling in that. And, and I don't know if you've ever been there, but when, when, when you go through a prayer time and you feel like you've read your list, you feel kind of icky toward God, like just laying these things at your feet and then I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go away and just answer whenever, I guess. Whatever you're going to do, just do it. But what's interesting about it is I, I thought about this, and then, and then as I was studying this out, it hit me that I haven't been hearing God in my prayer life. Are you hearing God? Now, I've never heard God audibly. Maybe you have, I haven't. But I've heard God plenty to confirm what it is I'm about to do, in the middle of doing, thinking about doing, and I've heard that through the voice of others. I've heard it through the voice of my wife often. And that, my friends, is called the work of the Holy Spirit. So the challenge that I'm feeling in, and connecting back to this hearing is this. You're, you're working through something with God right now. I don't know what that is. And for you, I don't know if that's looking for a direction, an answer, a challenge. Something's broken in your life. Something needs repaired. Someone in your family needs repaired. Something's not right. I'm going to ask you this week to hear God. Shema, to be able to actually hear God's voice and understand the direction. Now, in, in the Jewish faith, 
there was a, a, a way to do that. And I'm learning from this, right? So the, the Jewish faith, um, there's, they're taught to cover their face. And I think there's a, there's a picture. And if, and if you're not co- connected to the first words of that verse in Deuteronomy, hear, O Lord, the Lord is one. If you're distracted, the Shema says, you don't quit. You keep repeating it. And you keep going deeper until you hear God. And now I'm starting to get a grip at what's wrong in my prayer life. Like I'm, I'm distracted. There's something going on and I'm getting up and walking away and I'm not concentrating. One of the other things that the, the Jewish tradition teaches comes from, uh, it actually comes from Scripture in Psalm 35.10, all my limbs shall say, who is like you, O Lord? Psalm 18.28, for you will light my candle the Lord my God will enlighten my darkness. There's a sway to some of the Jewish prayer. Now some of us today, and you've been in services where people will will raise holy hands. I don't care if you have to blink, kneel, lay, leave, whatever that is for you, what is going to get us to concentrate in our busy worlds, in our culture, which says, I want it and I want it now. Are we listening? Are we hearing God? Are we in the, this idea or notion that I'm going to hear God on this? Now, the way to do that is to talk about it. So don't stop at the prayer, get wise counsel. But it's also to hear what are the potential options here, Lord, that I'm faced with. Hearing God's voice is incredibly important to our worship. And I believe that Lydia was right in the middle of that because it says the word equin was used in in this passage, which was to hear and to listen. And I believe the Shema really led her in that direction. The, the, The Jewish faith says that that's like a flickering candle. Like, light me up, Lord. I'm a candle waiting for you to come in. I, my, my hands are covered, my hands are raised because I'm inviting you into this. That's the, that's the intentionality of prayer. I want to I go on to some more in the Deuteronomy because it's powerful, because it, it teaches us how to lead our homes. In Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, particular ways that we can be intentional about our homes. It says this, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and you walk along the road in your neighborhood. When you lie down and when you get up, tie them as symbols to your hands, bind them to your foreheads, write them on the door frames of your houses and your gates. Now, I don't have Shema written over my door frame. I don't know if you do, but we have scripture around the house. And we do talk about it, and we have devos, and we, but intentionality. I mean, what would be said about your home, about my home, if, if people thought about some of the things listed in that scripture? It would, be a, it would be a different place. And what would the impact be in our neighborhoods if if we raised our homes and we were intentional about building our homes in that way? 
Now, I believe that Lydia was this. So let's talk about Lydia for a minute. Lydia, dealer in purple, fine purple, from Thyatira, which was over by on that map. She was over in Asia Minor, about 230 miles from Philippi. She lands in Philippi because she has a business. Now, her business was in purple, and at the time, purple came from a snail out of the Mediterranean Sea, and one of the glands had a purple dye in it, one drop per snail. It took four million mollusks to create a pound of purple. I don't know what her manufacturing operation was, but she clearly knew how to pull the purple out of the snail. And she did it well, and that would, purple would have been a symbol that the wealthy wore, that kings, that royalty. You remember, they put purple on Jesus to mock him as a king. But purple would have been significant. And she was using her business. She was, she was looking for ways to connect. And so I, I actually found a, a drawing, a picture of, of Lydia that I wanted to share with you. Now, I'm amazed that so long ago they were that good at drawing. But I, I think Lydia was powerful. Because when we read what she said to Paul after, so, so think about this. Here's Paul and a bunch of men coming upon this scene looking for another group of men and they find women praying. And Lydia lights up and she says to Paul this, and I think almost in this tone, if you have counted me faithful, then you'll stay at my house and let me keep you there and give you what you need. I think she sold him. I think she led him. And, and when you read the book of Philippians, which is the church, which I think met likely in her home or a home until it got big, I think she led it. Now, we can't get into women and the role of leadership in the church. That's going to be another, it's another whole sermon series. But, but women are powerful in our church. It never fails when I'm doing a community meditation and I look out and I'm like, oh my gosh, the, the leadership of women, the Lydia's sitting in our, are powerful. And so the, the New Testament, the Old Testament, women were leading, okay? Make no mistake about it. Lydia was a leader and she was a strong leader. When you read Paul's writings about the church in Philippi, read this week, read Philippians chapter 4. Some of the most beautiful things about a church ever are said in Philippians chapter 4. Rejoice always. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Pray in all situations. God's peace will guard your hearts. Think about things that are pure and lovely and noble and praiseworthy and think on these things. Contentment, sharing and giving more than anyone else. Sending aid to the helpless. Becoming a fragrant offering to all who come in contact with you. I think Paul had a really special place in his heart for these women. I, I think it would have been interesting to see him come back to Jerusalem and go, yeah, well, I found this group of women. Uh, and, but I don't think he did that. I think he came back and he said, look, we have leaders. Here's why it's significant. Lydia, the first convert in Europe. The first convert in Europe. Europe is influenced for the next 2,000 years. Europe brings Christianity to America. So you think your household can't be significant? Can't be influential? 
Lydia makes a huge mark on our faith today. There's, a, there's an avenue that God goes that we need to follow Him on. We have this thing that we're talking about in our values at Sherwood Oaks that we live like God owns everything. I think Lydia was a picture of this. I think she laid her job, her community, the women group that she was leading, the church, Paul, she took them in and she became that for her people. She was an influence and that's the last point. Intentional influence. When, when we think about influence, we think about who's at the top, right? So when you think about the word influence, if it's just me or is the first thing that comes to your mind is well, like, well, who's at the top? And I don't know if you're like me, but are, is anybody else sick of the political world whose main aim is to... Now, this is, by the way, this is not a political party statement, please. This is global. The main aim is to figure out who's at the pyramid, and that's the goal. But again, that's not, a, that's not aimed at anyone. That's global. That's in our organizations. That's in our churches sometimes. But the idea of influence comes from this Greek verb, ilatu, which means this, to make myself less. So think about that for a minute. What did Jesus teach? The, first will, the last will be first, and the first will be last. What did John say about Jesus when he was baptized? I must become less, that he must become more. So when you think about influence, I don't care what title, what role, what job, whatever it is that we're seeking out, that is not the influence of the Bible. In fact, when you think about Jesus who's going to wash grimy feet, but think about his influence. So what's your influence? What, what, what situation has God put you in? The English word for influence comes from the word flu or flow, which means flowing through. So what's flowing through you? If you were to ask a group of people at work in your home, in your neighborhood, about your character, how does that look? What flows through you as they say, you have the reputation that you've earned? That reputation that you have, it's yours. You own it. You've earned it. Whatever that may be, that's what it is. I like what my Angelo says. If you don't like your situation, change it. If you can't change it, change your attitude. Pretty simple. This idea of, of flow or flu, think about that, pray about that. What flows through you in your neighborhood? What flows through you in your family? There's another word that comes out of that flow or flu, which is influenza. It was believed in ancient times that influenza flowed through the stars, passed through some evil spirits, and landed on an individual. And oftentimes that's what they died of, was influenza. I remember going to, to a doctor one time, I, act, I had the actual flu, and I said, I don't know how I got it. Because nobody around me had it. And he says, well, you opened the door and influenza. I, I, I think I wanted to throw up on him because it was not funny at the time. It can, be, it can be negative sickness that flows through, or it can be positive influence. How's that flowing for you? Where's your influence? Again, I believe that Lydia 
was one of the most influential leaders that we read about in our Bible. So here's our challenge this week. Wherever you are, whether that's in your home, in your neighborhood, at work, you're one life. You're one life to come. How can you be intentional? Hear God for who He's leading you to. Or opening up your own life to, hear, to be heard more, to get through it. Invite someone. Be hospitable. Find your Lydia. Find your Lydian family. And open up for the, to, to be that influencer. That's your challenge this week.